0: welcome back with today's content being ubiquitous across pretty much everywhere and of course everyone and their mothers are self-proclaimed gurus and podcaster nowadays a guilty as charged i think it's really important to find that healthy balance between educational material and some comedy or humor just packaging and wrapping up a bunch of statistics and facts and ergo knowledge aren't very beneficial if nobody wants to listen to them which brings me to this week's guests, Justin Romano, MD, and Eddie Carello, LPC. Justin is a child psychiatry fellow, Eddie is a licensed psychotherapist, and they are the co-hosts of the Millennial Mental Health Channel podcast. I will keep their introductions brief so we can jump right into today's episode, but if you're looking for the funniest and the most insightful mental health and psychiatry related interview, look no more. Justin and Eddie with their holistic focus on psychiatry and mental health, were able to amass an incredibly large following. And they were also one of the top mental health podcasts in the United States because of their ability to combine comedy and education together in this very harmonic way. And I'm very excited to talk to them more and introduce you about their incredible wealth of knowledge and golden nuggets and their comedic approach to talking about something heavy, because we don't always have to be too serious, especially with heavy and serious topic like mental health. So Justin is giving his first TED Talk this November while also preparing for fatherhood, while Eddie is diligently serving his clients and students as a therapist and an adjunct faculty at Pacific University Graduate School of Psychology. So expect to learn about their unique approach to demystifying mental health for the millennials how psychiatry and mental health became their true north stars, some of their biggest takeaways from hosting their successful mental health podcast, and much, much more. This episode is absolutely full of golden nuggets and humor, so I hope everyone enjoy this week's episode of Discover More, and let's get this started.
1: Is it so much of medicine, so much of becoming a doctor, is about preventing people from dying, but psychiatry seemed like the kind of profession that helps people live. Mental health is all about learning about yourself and growth and just learning about life and learning about, about how your brain responds to life. And it's about trying to find some. Discover More podcast is for introspective thinkers with growth
0: mindsets seeking authentic life storms. As a therapist, Benoit Kim highlights the magical relationship between healing and the optimal human experience of what we call life. Here's to your mental health being a top priority today and every single day. Let's get this started. Justin and Eddie, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having us. What an intro. Mm-hmm. Thank <laughs> you. That was awesome.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love starting Wednesday night with some men to men affirmations. Right? <laughs> Just guys being dudes.
2: Always, always.
0: So I wanted to start at a place I think you two would really appreciate um, because both of you have really specialized interests clinically, interpersonally with children and adolescents, which I know is a direct reflection of the loving family environment you two grew up in. So what does a family or healthy family dynamic mean to you both?
1: All righty then. (laughs) I'll go ahead and start uh, Oh man, the healthy family dynamic means so much. What we know about so many mental health diagnoses, and this is a blanket statement, is that there's what we call the two-hit hypothesis. It's nature and nurture. It's genetics and your environment. Yes, your genetics can predispose you to things, but your environment is ultimately what makes those different diagnoses come out. As a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I know my training has taught me that those early interactions with your caregivers mean so much, especially from like zero to two. Most people think like, Oh, it's just a baby. They don't remember, but just because they don't remember, it doesn't mean that it is highly, highly, highly impactful on their brain and their brain development. So that's, that's what ultimately I'm trying to do in this world is, is try and help kids feel the love and warmth that I had growing up, because I know that that's how a healthy brain, a happy kid grows up, is just feeling like they got a good environment. People that that are out there caring for
2: them and loving them. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Family for me ends up being like, yes, it's like the typical, we are related, but it's also the people that you enjoy spending time with and that are there for you and are not just Let's have fun together. It's, it's, we're there for you no matter what. And I think that ends up translating into like my friendships. Like I, I feel like my friends at this point are just an extension of my family. And I think in my work, it's, it's me trying to make a connection with whatever client, student, patient that I'm with so that they know, you know, there's somebody else in their corner. Like maybe home life isn't the greatest. Maybe it is the greatest. Maybe at school was not the best. Maybe it is. But either way, you can always have additional extensions to your family and to your support people that are there for you.
0: Yeah, there's uh, my brain's going all towards different directions. But with what Eddie said, I feel like it reminds me of that when you see killing in therapy, whatever that healing avenue looks like, it's not really for yourself. When a one person gets healed, it's extension and ripples effect through multiple people. And that's why I think healing is important. And Justin, I want to tie this into both of your collective love for beer. Uh, Based on what you said is that from zero to two, just because we don't remember does not mean it has no impact. And as we know, one of the potential implications of drinking is blocking out or not remembering. However, we cannot undermine the impact of that behavior and patterns on towards our brain environments. As mental health advocates, for you, Justin and Eddie, how do you guys balance your love for beer and the potential harmful effect of alcohol on our health overall?
2: Man. <laughs> um, I will I will start with uh the word moderation. I had a friend a long time ago tell me he he loves being a chef and he loves what food does to people and how it brings people together. And I feel like I have the same thought process when it comes to having a drink or two with with people you love and people you care about. It's just that little thing. It's there, you're sharing it together, you're having a good time. It's not what makes the good time, but it's there with you. So it's just that like social aspect of it.
1: And I'd say for me, I am a gigantic hypocrite because I am drinking as we're recording this right now. (laughs) I've got a lovely scotch with me. uh, But It is always a balance. Like Eddie said, moderation. I'm always like assessing and questioning whether or not, like, am I drinking too much right now? Should I be cutting back on this? Because it's getting to the point where now I'm going to be a father pretty soon. And I'm like, should I, should I just stop? Like, should I cut down? But the way I see it is like everything in life, you have to have those things that you enjoy. And there are things I enjoy about drinking. I think it does help me be a little bit more social. It does help me connect with some of the people that I love and the people I spend the most time with. Luckily for me, drinking hasn't ever gotten in the way of my life. I was really surprised going into medical school. I was like, okay, these guys are gonna be super serious. Everyone's gonna take it very soon. No one's gonna be partying. And those medical school kids partied harder than anyone. And everyone was drinking. And, and we know that statistically, Doctors actually consume more substances and they struggle with both narcotic use and alcohol use, too, because it is at its very core a way to cope, a way to cope with all the stress. And sometimes I come home, just like Eddie said, from a shitty day, and I want something to help me decompress, calm down. Similarly to Eddie, too, over COVID, I was drinking too much. And so my radar went off and I was like, okay, you got to tone it back a little bit. And luckily I was able to. Uh, And it helps to give me a little bit of empathy for the people who who can't always cut back, who just keep feeling compelled to drink more and more and more.
0: Yeah. So I want to tie that into the extensions of our family support or support system. So what would you guys uh, tell people who maybe don't have the metacognitive ability to check themselves? What would you say to them that how can they externalize or reach out to an external support system to keep them accountable or anything in between?
1: That's a really tricky thing because in the world of drinking, in the world of substances and addiction, if you don't admit or have the insight into knowing that you have a problem, then that first step of asking for help is never going to happen. So the one thing I try and do with, especially my patients who are drinking too much is use the Socratic method as much as possible and ask them like, do you feel as though you're drinking too much? Do you feel as though your drinking is getting in the way of your relationships, your career, the things you want in life? And if it is, then maybe it's time to consider cutting back.
2: Yeah, similar to Justin, I try to think of like the, the gaining of insight and awareness and not just when it comes to to drinking, but just kind of any client I'm working with, it's like either you think there's an issue or someone has told you there's an issue and maybe you're just sitting in front of me because your mom told you to or because your your girlfriend thinks there's an issue. Either way, let's talk through this and figure out is there any insight that needs to be gained? Is there any awareness that needs to be gained and kind of go from there and then assess where to kind of go next with the client.
0: Yeah, what I tell people is I'm not in the business of convincing, whether that's the psychedelic medicine we'll talk about down the road, because I think all of us have the capacity to think for themselves and whether you're self-identified as a cognitive thinker or feeler, even though we're always both, but it is a spectrum and that's a general a name. statement. And I think all of us can seek evidence. So when people are like, oh, I don't think I have a problem. I was like, you maybe don't, you maybe do. But can you evaluate, look at the archives of your behaviors in your life? Can you seek out any evidence that shows otherwise? Alternative or counter evidence. And a lot of times just doing MI, right? Motivational interviewing or Socratic questioning. They're like, oh, maybe I do have to reevaluate where I am. So um, that's, I resonate with that very deeply. So tying in the addiction, it's a load of questions. And love for both of you to take wherever it may, not that... All of my previous questions were unloaded. (laughs) (laughs) Could you explain why all of us are addicts in one form or the other, especially within the realm of technology and smartphone? Um, And what are the implications of such new modern 2022 versions of addiction that a lot of people overlook or don't even consider twice about?
2: My first thought as you asked the question, I watched a a video a while back uh, from my... Treatment of chemical dependency class. It's like chasing the forbidden dragon. Like, once you try it once, uh, you want to get to that point again where you reach that high or you, you feel that, uh, the ecstasy or the, the elation that a certain thing gives you. So I think it's like a sim, it's similar, like almost across the board, whether it's, uh, marijuana, alcohol, my cell phone, the first time you try something, because it is so new to you, especially like with technology, and you look at like little kids, right? The first time they they get to have the phone to keep them entertained, or they get to watch TV, then they want it again. It's I, I feel like it's that idea of of chasing the forbidden dragon for some people. It's the um, I want to feel like I did the very first time. I end up never feeling that way of like I did the first time. But if I keep trying it, maybe I will get there. Even though in the back of my mind, I might know I'm never gonna get there. To build on that, this is actually largely what my
1: TED talk in uh, November is about, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) is that all addictive things pretty much do the same thing in your brain. They release dopamine in the areas of the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens that make it the reward pathway that we also call the addiction pathway. So there's lots of ways that your brain can release dopamine or lots of different things that can do that. Yes, it can be substances like drugs and alcohol, meth releases a ton of dopamine into those areas, smoking does it, weed does it, alcohol does it, anything addictive. like. This whole system was made for a purpose, like for example in caveman times if you found a new food source that helped you survive, your brain would release a ton of dopamine in those areas to make you feel good about your find and increase your drive to do it again. But in today's world there are limitless, there are endless different things that are trying to get your brain to release dopamine without actually being good for you, and that's an addiction. It's a hollow dopamine release that doesn't actually help you survive. And unfortunately, with technology, with our phones, these app designers have found a way to essentially hack our reward and addiction pathway to get us to release a ton of dopamine and to build up a dependence and essentially build up an addiction to our cell phones.
0: So I know that some neuroscience research shows that the, and I'll actually backtrack a little bit, I think a lot of people may demonize the word dopamine, right? But then obviously that's just a biological response. And a lot of people call it dopamine the molecule of more. You just want more of what you're feeling. And I know a lot of neuroscience research shows that the dopamine spike actually peaks before you partake the action you've anticipating. It's like the anticipatory bliss. And of course, partaking in the activity, it also peaks at. Any thoughts there tying into what we just talked about?
1: i've heard that in especially like the context of heroin and rituals like a lot of people who are addicted to heroin they love that ritual of getting it out melting it in the spoon or or mixing it up and putting it in the syringe and that part alone is enough to get you enough dopamine so even the things that lead to a relapse or lead to you reusing feel good your brain is saying keep doing it keep going you're about to get that huge hit and so it's, it's just another way to fall down that rabbit hole of addiction.
0: Yeah. Um, at the same time, I feel like a lot of people say information or knowledge is power. But obviously millennials, which is a millennium, which is the era of information, everyone and their mothers have podcasts nowadays and everyone and their mothers have something to share. So I recognize that information is power, but more so I think appliance or application is power. So what can we do? with the information you two just shared? Is there any pra- practical takeaways or actionable items we could do at this time?
2: I think the important thing whenever someone's trying to try something new is to understand that it's probably not going to go well the first few times. I, one example that I, I'll share openly is before I saw my my very first therapist, I had a really hard time with like overthinking and catastrophizing. And finally, when I started working with her, she spelled it out for me in just a way that like really clicked for me. Um, and she taught me this thing of like checking the facts and like, that's how I can work through automatic negative thoughts. And for whatever reason, I couldn't do that myself. I needed somebody to tell me, which is totally fine. And and I think, and it's probably why we're such a big advocate for, for therapists having their own therapy. But I remember in the beginning thinking like, how am I ever going to do that? Like, how am I going to practice this idea of checking the facts in the moment. Like, that sounds dumb. I didn't tell her that, but I was like, there's no way, like how my brain's going to be a thousand miles a minute. Like there's no way. And then I started to practice it a little bit. I I would do it in the car. I'm driving home. I turned down the music. I try, I'd give it a try. It wasn't very good. The first time it wasn't very good. The second, third, fourth, fifth time, but finally something started to click where it's like, okay, I can do this and I don't even need to turn down the music anymore. Or I don't even need to really think about it anymore. I can stop. And my brain can stop for even just two seconds and i could start to use that new skill that i had and now it now it feels better. so i guess really to to answer it it's it's to know like with the new information we're getting and new things that we want to try and and practice new things for ourselves is understanding that the first 15 times might suck but the 16th time might be the one that really sets it in motion for you almost like the opposite of chasing the forbidden dragon you get the the shitty experiences out of the way first knowing that there's a possibility that it's all gonna come together eventually.
1: Yes, and from an MD perspective, there's, there's lots you can do to try and combat this. And I think particularly there's one medication we use all the time called naltrexone that actually modulates that reward and addiction pathway so that if you say, if you do drink alcohol, then it doesn't release quite as much dopamine, so alcohol becomes less addictive. So we're learning how to do this, and and this is just like the first of medications that could potentially help down the road. Um, Not that medicines are the end-all be-all answer for addictions, but understanding just how the brain works, spreading that knowledge, I think is going to help, especially for young people, and understanding that your phones are basically just trying to trick you into using them all the time. And most kids, when I talk to them about it, they have no idea that cell phone addiction could be bad. And with any addiction comes a lot of comorbidities like depression, anxiety, substance use, obsessive compulsive disorder. Like There are big, real world consequences of any addiction, including cell phones. So education's a big piece. There are medicines that we're learning about can help. Uh, and then just having the, the strength and the willpower to reach out for help if you feel like you need it.
0: Yeah, also with alcohol and cannabis, for example, there are inheritance structures and mechanism in place that sort of limit your usage, right? If you're at a ninety-five job, you can't just whip out a cannabis and smoking unless you work at MAPS, John Hopkins, which would be a great work setting. Or with alcohol, like you can sip whiskey during this podcast interview, but you can't really do that at work. Conversely, though, for cell phone, there is no such mechanism in place. You can do it in the bathroom. You can do that in the gym, you can do that at the desk, you can do that at home, you can do that in bed. Like when does it stop? It never stops. So I feel like that's a good concrete way to sort of hold both and compare them. Not that they're comparable with their harmful effects with meth and cell phone per se, but I think the addictive property is comparable uh, by any measure.
1: Totally agree. And the fact that smartphones are socially acceptable, I think that's what really separates it from any other previous addiction is that, you know, giving your kid weed or giving your kid alcohol is like, that's pretty frowned upon. Most people aren't going to do that, but giving your kid the new iPhone for Christmas makes you a good parent, right? Or at least that's what the commercials tell you or want you to believe. So it's, you're absolutely right. That social acceptability of your, and you're expected to use it everywhere and there's never a break and uh that's why teenagers you, are on their phones for up to nine hours per day on average. So that's the tolerance and the screen time is creeping up year
2: after year because they're designed to do that. I think the the one place where I can think of where maybe there's some constraints uh, is school. But even then, it gets really tough. I, and I'll just compare it to the, the school I'm at right now. Uh, last year, we had a really hard time with, with students and keeping their phones away. Uh, and I think it, it was like a school culture thing, right? Like nobody really was, was on it. Nobody was, was making a point to be like, Hey, put your phone away. And it just kind of took over for the rest of the year. Right. You, you get, especially with teenagers, with anybody, but especially with teenagers, if you try to march back on something when nobody else is doing it, you're just going to get run out of your own classroom. Right. Like no one's going to listen to you. Um, what I will say is this year, I think there's been a, a bigger concerted effort to, to have more restraints on cell phones in school and I think it's making an impact and this is just subjectively from talking to teachers um whether it's in the lunchroom whether it's just in passing it's sounds like things are better but you're right I mean other than and and that just that that varies school to school like some schools won't even care some schools will and um unless we're all on the same page about it like I guess yeah there, there really isn't going to be uh a type of constraint on it.
0: Yeah. In addition, and we're not gonna go too much into the macro, but just a quick glimpse that in addition to the all of these organized uh, organizational industrial psychologists having the top talents, top budgets by marketing agencies, by these phone agencies to really max out and pump out these marketing, how can even adults like us with higher education and master's, doctorate degrees, let alone children, and adolescents, they don't stand a chance. Like normal consumers don't stand a chance it's it's a very lopsided competition to begin with and it's it is a big concern of mine um, even though i use cell phones too but at least we have this heightened cultivated self-awareness to curb the usage as part of self which is a privilege um, in itself right
2: i think too it it goes back to like the idea of knowing like the first fifteen times that I try to put my phone on do not disturb or I try to put my, my phone down before I get into bed thirty minutes before it's bedtime, it's gonna be really tough. I'm used to the the TikToks before bed or I'm used to oh I wonder about this. Let me go check Reddit. Let me go check this. Let me I can get the information right now. Um you're right. I mean it is it is a, a privilege in a way that we we have the opportunity to at least be like, okay, maybe I should cut down on this and, and not everybody has that.
1: And I think that's why we ultimately have to hold the companies who are making this addictive content accountable. And if you look at historical examples, we were able to hold like tobacco companies accountable, and that turned the tide in the smoking epidemic. We haven't been able to do the same for the obesity epidemic and the food companies with sugar. So what we do and what we force these companies to do will change how they approach us because right now it's an unhealthy balance where so many people are are getting more and more addicted. And I think we're going to have to start holding them accountable if we want true systematic change.
0: Yeah, as a former policymaker who got jaded after six years in policy who turned into the micro as a clinician currently, I just want to send a message of hope that a lot of people view the macro or the system as a like monstrosity that, oh, how can individuals ever fight against this monster? I want to remind everyone that the macro is comprised of the micro, period. They're comprised of people like us who chose a different path and took them repetitions in years to get to where they are. But as long as the macro is comprised of the micro individual decision makers, there is hope for change. And I think that's what mental health is about, right? Recognizing the capacity for change and doing something about that. Um, any thoughts there
2: yeah that you mentioned earlier benoit but like the uh like your circle of influence of like if i choose to do this one thing and it impacts this one person and then how that impacts that person can impact the next person they interact with and it does start to spread out it is like that uh what is the visual of like the pebble in in a lake a still lake that's sitting there and seeing how much it spreads out i 100% 100% agree. And I think that's a good reminder because I think you mentioned being jaded as a, as a former policymaker. It feels like, as a clinician, not like fully jaded, but like there's some days that are harder than others to feel like the hope for, to feel like the, the extra empathy that people need. I 100% agree.
1: Yeah, the macro's got to come from somewhere. So it may as well be the micro is where those ideas come from until they get big enough, get enough people to buy in until it becomes the macro
0: so eddie i want to circle back to the forbidden dragon you talked about earlier and i want to tie that into my another identity of being a veteran a big uh, adage in the military is called embrace the suck Uh, and obviously that statement has multi multi multi-layer meaning, and multi-faceted but tying that into everything we talked about maybe habit building cultivating a support system circle of trust uh, everything in between and especially with mental health because i think a lot of the mental health is recognizing the cruel reality at times that comes with suffering which is the inherent nature of life at the same time i think recognizing what we can do in response to this container of life uh, i would love for you to to tackle the statements and share your thoughts about what does uh, it mean for embrace the suck in terms of the realm of mental health
2: i think the I'm gonna hit my my favorite answer that I tell students all the time uh when I'm at Pacific teaching. Uh, it really just depends on the situation. Um I think as you were sharing that and as you finished the question, the very first thing that stuck into my head was uh embrace the suck to the best of your abilities. For some people, like you mentioned, like military veterans, like their ability to embrace the suck is probably a lot higher than like mine. Uh, and when I used to play football, uh, I could probably embrace the suck a lot more <laughs> than I can now. Right. And it's just because that used to be my environment and that used to be, and I'm not saying the military and playing division three college football is the exact same. It's definitely not. Uh, there are big differences, but I think the, the idea is still the same of like, it depends on what your, ability is in like embracing the suck to the best of your abilities. I think in terms of like mental health, it's, it's asking clients basically to practice like that distress tolerance or to practice that sitting with discomfort, to practice that, uh, urge surfing, to practice all of these things that really, really suck and are not fun and make us uncomfortable and make me want to get up out of class and go to the counseling office because I'm having a really hard time. It's learning how do I, start to build up my ability um, and and get better at it, but get better to the best that my body and my mind can do it. And not trying to compare somebody's ability to embrace the suck to somebody else's ability, because everybody's ability to embrace the suck is gonna be different. My biggest thing is to the best of your abilities. And then from there, if that's something you wanna continue to improve on, cool. How do we keep pushing it? How do we keep making the the finish line a little farther?
1: And when I hear embrace the suck, I think about the concept of avoidance. And in psychiatry, in mental health in general, we're, we're talking about avoidance. And most of the most important things in life, the things that, that actually have meaning and are good for you, suck a little bit. <laughs> so as someone who work with, works with kids, like kids will avoid school because it sucks. But they want a career. They like want to graduate high school. So it's like, okay, well, you have to embrace the suck. You can't keep avoiding school. You got to embrace it so that you can get what you want. You got to make sure that the means justify the end. Uh, in, I see this all the time in trauma therapy too. I, I just got off of a, a residential rotation where so many of those kids have just been through so much and it, it's just awful. And you talk to them about addressing their trauma and doing trauma therapy and they're like, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. It hurts. It's hard. It sucks. And I'm like, I know it hurts. It's hard. It sucks. But if you want to get better, if you want to get to a point where your trauma is no longer impacting your everyday life, you got to open that box up and you got to go through it with someone. Otherwise, it's just going to keep eating at you every day.
0: Oh man, interviewing two people is not easy because both of you bring so much good insights and my brain is like splitting in half. Here we go. Let me uh, try to uh, dissect one by one. Uh, I want to start with what you said, Justin, in terms of the where they are in life versus where they want to be. One of my favorite techniques as a therapist is gap analysis. You're highlighting the gap between where they're currently with their behaviors, their patterns and highlighting and hold that capacity with where they wanna be. Like a case in point is I just said beautifully that I hate school, I don't wanna be diligent, I don't wanna stick to my routine, I don't wanna finish my homework, and I wanna be a lawyer. Like, hold on a minute, that's that's incongruence right there. You wanna skip homework, but lawyers, all they do is litigations and read case analysis. That doesn't make sense. Help me understand, what do you mean by that? Just doing that, they're like, oh, oh, I see. Oh, I see how that could be incongruent. congruence. Um, so that's something I just wanna highlight. And Eddie, the, I love the theme of self-compassion that you said, beautifully put, because I think we have to first recognize that we're not gods, we have our limitations. And due to the product byproduct of circumstances, all of us have different thresholds for genetic markers, willpower, um, risk tolerance, distress tolerance, everything in between. So I really want to highlight the messaging of self-compassion that we must extend that to ourselves first. Um, on that same token, I also want to talk about, you said comparison tendencies. I call it like woke Olympics or comparison Olympics. Like, oh, no, your trauma isn't big enough. Mine's bigger. Oh, your hardship wasn't big enough. My hardship's harsher. I think it's a huge detriment of the 21st century, 2020, 2022. Any thoughts on the comparison olympics or tendencies and why comparison is truly the thief of happiness
1: i know a lot of people who who do that in a negative way for example they'll say like oh they'll compare themselves to other people and say oh well someone else has it way harder than me so why am i complaining why am i struggling i don't need to go get help i don't need to talk to a therapist i'll be fine And so even comparisons, yes, they can be of a narcissistic nature and say, oh, well, whatever I've had is way worse than everyone else. But on the flip side of that, too, it can it can prevent you from seeking care. It can prevent you from understanding and having that insight that maybe just because someone else in Ukraine is struggling more than you, that maybe you both need a
2: therapist. I feel like there's there's days where I'm at work and it's been at this job and other jobs where the teens that I'm working with really make me feel like this world is going to be okay. Like we're going to be fine. Like it, at some points it really sucks and looks really grim, but I think we're going to be okay. And by that, I mean like there's a lot of times where kids will like Justin saying, like they will put others needs in front of their own and they will say exactly. This person needs, me more than I need something for myself. So I'm going to be there for them and I'm going to support them as best possible. And I think that's great. And I think that's, that's beautiful. And it's, it's, it's awesome to see kids thinking that way, because I don't think I was thinking that way when I was 14, 15, 16, what I try to do with students like that and patients and and clients like that is to just stop and be like the way that you're talking about yourself. Would you ever say that to one of your best friends? Would you ever say that to somebody that, that needs you? And the answer is pretty much always no. So it's trying to stop them and give them that first realization and the self-compassion we talk about of like, if you're not going to talk about like somebody else like that, or if you're not going to respond to somebody else like that, how about for once we, we make sure we're not responding to ourselves like that. Like, it's okay. It's okay to, if you think it's selfish for you to put your feelings first, that's totally fine. Be selfish for a little bit. Learn to be selfish once in a while. Um, yeah, just trying to to ingrain that in the kids, and I think the yeah. Sometimes you'll get the the comparison wars of like your situation is not as bad as mine or this and that. But I almost feel like Justin said it, it. It's almost the flip side that we see more often of like you have it way more worse. You have it way worse than me. I need to stop. When really it's like both can be true. You they can have a really shitty day, and you can have a maybe even worse day. Both of you deserve. Compassion and care and respect and, and nurturing for your well-being.
0: I think the natural follow-up question is, in terms of the sake of modeling, how do you two, Justin and Eddie, amidst your busy commitments, doing 12 different things, trying to create some positive ripple in life, how do you two show yourself self compassion when
2: you guys need the most? No comment.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I... <laughs> that's I mean that's good. I don't know if, if I think about that too often. I mean maybe um putting myself first whether it's like telling myself it's okay that I I don't respond to every text message right away, um letting my phone, you know, get a bunch of messages and not responding to them, um deciding that for this weekend I don't want to do anything or or my girlfriend and I are going to just take time to ourselves and and not have to go out and do all these things. I think it's whatever i 'm feeling at the time and trying to be like selfish with my my own thoughts and emotions of like yeah like if if someone 's not going to like the answer that I give them like that 's too bad because that 's what 's best for me right now I'm trying to do those things, and I know it especially as all three of us people who are in the in the industry of of compassion and caring um, it doesn 't happen all the time but but when it does it it 's definitely helpful, yeah,
1: and compassion fatigue is a real thing, especially in this job. And I got to admit that every once in a while this job creeps up on me, especially if I've been through a hard interview and usually by hard it's just talking to someone who's just been through so much trauma and some of that vicarious trauma, a term we use when you're just talking to people about these horrible things that happen all day. I always tell my patients that dealing with emotional stress, dealing with emotional pain is such an individual thing, whatever works for you, whatever you like. And I meet some patients that I say, well, like, what are your strategies? What do you like to do to decompress some of these heavy emotions? And if they say, I don't know, then I say that that's usually a sign that we got to find something So you got to listen to yourself. And figure out ways that are important to you that can help you get through those hard times. Personally, man, I cry. I cry my eyes out. Like, and it's great because I have a wife that's very supportive. And when that happens, cause it kind of happens out of nowhere. We'll just be like talking at dinner and uh, all of a sudden I'll start talking about a case and like my emotions keep ramping up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then all of a sudden I'm just bawling and I, I don't try to do the man thing and say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not crying. I just let it go. I let it all out because it feels so good. And then I find that my mood like the next day is so much better because I was able to just let it all go in that moment.
0: Justin, while you're letting go, are you also sipping on your scotch? Like does your tears blend in with the, the liquor? How does that
2: work?
1: <laughs> yes. I have basically just one giant ball of scotch at this point. Uh, No, I do think that intoxicants and substances can be a way to bring out that side of you if that's what it takes, as long as it's not the only way you can do it, and as long as it's not getting in the way of of you living the life that you want to live.
0: Yeah, of course, jokes aside, I really appreciate you, uh, a man like you, showing the vulnerability and decision to share that crying because I'm a very, I'm an archetypical thinker, but when I do release like crying over like a movie or something, um, it feels great. Like that release is amazing. Cool. So I want to take us off pivot and go into the podcast from real quick, if I may. So, I think all of us, we have established that we're all mental health advocates. You know, two of us are psychotherapists. You're a psychiatrist with this holistic focus on physiological health and mental health. Um, So what does mental health mean to the masterminds behind the millennial mental health channel?
2: Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Justin, I'll let you go first because I think I'll just start rambling.
1: (laughs) Sure. Sure. Well, my cheesy answer, this is what I actually used in my residency interviews just because I liked it and actually it resonates with me, is that so much of medicine, so much of becoming a doctor is about preventing people from dying, but psychiatry seemed like the kind of profession that helps people live. Mental health is all about learning about yourself and growth and just learning about life and learning about about how your brain responds to life and it's about trying to find some happiness or at least trying to find something in this life that you enjoy that you want to live for and pursuing it and Eddie and I are are so into this because we're seeing that we are in a mental health crisis and this has been this has been slowly smoldering over the past decade or so, perhaps even the past 15 years, and the pandemic really escalated everything. It was such a catalyst for worsening mental health. So we're seeing people become more and more unhappy. And man, I just want people to be happy, live their best lives, live for something that they enjoy. One of the most magical things to, to Eddie and I is is hearing someone who's been positively impacted by our podcast, someone who, who messages us on our social media and says like, Oh, because of you, I had the strength to go get therapy, I, I realized that I needed to go get help. And we've had even just hearing one person puts in three three years of work on the podcast totally worth it if one person has somewhat more happiness more joy in life then man that, that there could not be a, a better high
2: than helping someone else feel feel better mental health i think for me is is health right it's just is overall health and well-being and i think something that we try to push a lot is is these this understanding that um you are entitled to, to be okay and not just physically, not just fixing your broken arm or not just, I, I had a root canal yesterday, not just getting my, my tooth fixed. Uh, it's, it's that working on whatever it is that's causing this anxiety or this depression or it's all, it's all the same, whether it's a physical thing, whether it's a mental thing. Mental health to us is just health and wanting to continue that fight and that push of like it's not a bad thing it's not uh you're not weak, you're not a bad person, there's nothing wrong with you. I think in this job and this role that we do in this podcast that we have, um the goal is just for mental health to just equal health and if we can keep pushing that and keep doing that and and figuring out a a way to discuss it each two weeks when we record, uh, I think we're moving in the right direction, so to me it's Mental health equals, equals health.
0: Uh, beautifully said. And I hope you're ready for the follow-up question because the heavy hitters are really... This is a warm-up. Heavy hitters <laughs> are starting now. We're ready. So I know a lot of us are becoming allergic to the term of holistic health because of all these self-claimed gurus and their mothers on Instagram. But I use this term intentionally because I re- want to reclaim the power and the meaning of that. I view love the same thing. I think the word of love has been diluted for many years, especially in the Western context. But I think love is God and God is love. And likewise, I want to reclaim what holistic health means. Any take on the mind-body-spirit paradigm, as you two beautifully said, that mental health is physical health and vice versa?
2: Your body can go as long as it, as it can. It can, it can deal with whatever trauma that you've dealt with. It can keep you going for, for days, weeks, months, even years for a lot of these people that we, we meet with and that we work with. Uh, but eventually your body's not going to be able to go anymore and, and you're just going to be left with a shell of yourself, uh, trying to pick up the pieces and trying to figure out how to keep moving forward. So if we can have an approach of like, I need to get this help for my mental health and I need to get it because I know it'll have a positive impact on my physical health. Just like taking care of my physical health has an overall positive impact on the rest of me. Um, that's what I think is, is really important. And, and I think you're right. I mean, this idea of holistic health, I'll see on like TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, someone will be the holistic this or the holistic that. And I, I worry a little bit because I'm like, what does that mean? Like what, what are you going to say? Like is this, is this a, not to bash life coaches. I know there's good ones out there, but is this a life coach that has no training and is just kind of saying the buzzwords and, and getting the popularity on TikTok because they hit the right hashtags? And is it one of those or is it somebody that's really taking into account all the pieces that can help make a whole human being that is healthy and that is doing well and thriving both menti- mentally and physically? I agree. We we need to get that back. And I think a, a holistic approach is is understanding that you need both. You need both physical and and mental well-being. Uh, And one can go a while without the other, but it's not going to be able to go forever. Totally.
1: I would say, yes, the whole mind, spirituality, body connection is so important. And as a physician, I have been trained over and over and over and over again to say that treatments have to be evidence-based. And it It's been said to me so many times that I understand the importance of it. But on the other side, not everything can be studied, especially something along the spirituality line of things. It's not always the easiest to study. But in today's world, I just feel like there's so many different people throwing out so much information at you that it's hard to weed through what's real, what's not real, to evaluate uh all the information out there like for example even as a physician after you know what 13 almost uh, yeah 13 years of education I'm not perfect at reading papers. So if someone comes out with some miracle treatment, I could easily be tricked by some papers. So it's it's really difficult. And as much as possible, you have to gravitate towards treatments that are tried and true, that have a strong evidence base, that have meta-analyses or have reviews and a broad scope of evidence to say like, yes, this is not snake oil. This is something that helps people objectively which is something I, I try and use as a model for myself and for my patients too. There has to be some evidence behind it. In terms of the realm of EBP
0: evidence-based practice, which obviously all of us adhere to, obviously the licensure is at stake, you have to. At the same time, I think all of us can acknowledge the influential players that exist within academia, like big pharma or these big institutions and entities, they exert so much subtle behind-the-scenes influence that most public doesn't know about, and they could influence and dictate the directions with the scope of evidence we talk about. Uh, Any thoughts on that? And maybe just from psychoeducation for the general public in the realm of evidence-based, because it is important at the same time, there are immense nuances within the evidence-based practice.
1: I would say you're absolutely right the big pharmaceutical companies dictate a lot of policy, a lot of treatment, a lot of care in this country. And the whole industry revolves around patents. And so you have to kind of follow what the patents are, what people are trying to make money off of. And that's the tricky part is because vitamins and minerals, you can't really patent that. Or something that's natural in in life, or like an herb or a plant, it's hard to, you can't patent it unless you genetically modify it. And so a lot of times, most of the studies in this world are funded by big pharma, and they're not going to fund a study on a substance that is readily available. It's widely available. They're only going to fund the studies on something that they can make a lot of money off of. And it's totally skewing our entire medical industry.
2: My thoughts on evidence-based practice is, is the trying to like empower our clients and our patients and our students of, of understanding that just because something is evidence-based does not mean it's going to work for everybody. And the, the threshold for evidence-based is, is not a hundred percent and it's never going to be a hundred percent. And knowing that just because, and I think specifically to, well, I mean, we can think about modalities too, right? Like CBT act, DBT, the big ones of like, yeah, they, there's a lot of evidence based in them, but they're not going to be the best fit for everybody. Same thing with, with medications of like some of the best, you know, whatever the best medication is for, for depression. You might be in front of, it might be a group of 10, nine of them might be, get the best care from that one medication, but you might be the one that doesn't and understanding and knowing that like, that's okay. Like there's other, there's other options. And, and just because something's evidence-based kind of like what you were mentioning, Justin, of like, just because something is printed in an article, uh, or it's, it's in a journal and it's, it's this new, hot new thing does not mean it's the end all be all and it does not mean that it's it's necessarily correct um studies a a lot of the time and maybe they're just like the psychological studies but you can see a lot of studies that get printed the first time and then they try to recreate it and there's no you can't recreate it right so it's it's being the the educated consumer and understanding that there's nothing wrong with you if something that's evidence-based does not work right away is knowing that like you you can consume as much information as possible to try and make the best decision for yourself when it comes to treatment and comparing evidence-based treatments.
0: Yeah, well said. And once again, I love the self compassionate thread line that with everything you speak through Eddie and I, you're very gracious and I'm sure you're a great therapist for a reason. Uh, I think I'm too old to be your client, but maybe in the next <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> um, and also as a podcaster, I love when different seemingly unrelated thread lines become unison, and I just had that moment, and here comes psychedelics. So in terms of, in terms of patent, Justin, um, we are currently in the psychedelic renaissance, and there is a huge company called Compass out of Canada, and they're the first company to went public with a billion-dollar evaluation, I think a year and a half ago, and they attempted to monoth- uh, monopolize by patenting synthetic psilocybin. But they were challenged many folds because, as you know, that compound existed for eons. So how can you patent it? But that's just a concrete example talking about the fuckery that exists within the realm of patenting and what we call evidence-based. So I am going for specialty in psychedelic assisted therapy and have my pulse on most research out there with John Hopkins maps on MDMA and psilocybin for PTSD and depression or treatment-resistant depression. Uh, and I'm also a beneficiary of the plant medicine myself. I was able to move through the biggest sexual trauma I had in college through psilocybin. And I'm sure we can share more about that on your show. But why do you, uh, in particular, Justin, because I know this is more of your forte and Eddie will love to hear your thoughts as well. Why do you believe in the power of psychedelic medicine, especially currently in this so-called psychedelic renaissance, air quote? Where a lot of people are simply following the trend because it's a cool thing to do.
1: Great question. I actually had a, a conversation with my attending the other day, and she said, "Oh, I I never really follow the fads. This seems like a fad. I'm not going to jump on board." And I was like, "I don't think this is a fad," <laughs> because if you if you look at the history of psychedelics, and how in the nineteen fifties and sixties there was there were thousands and thousands of papers. The the original uh, creator of LSD, Sandos, they would give their samples out to anyone. If you would write into them and say you were gonna do a, a trial or a study on LSD, they would just give it out to you and be like, all right, good luck. So there was a ton of evidence rolling in that showed that it was good until it was demonized in the sixties by the Nixon administration was placed as a schedule one drug and totally stopped everything. So I don't think this is a fad because this has been reiterated multiple times throughout human history, not just starting in the sixties, going back to ancient uh, South Americans and Central Americans using primarily psilocybin magic mushrooms as a spiritual awakening. I think if it if it goes away it's going to keep coming back too i i think there is some real merit to this and the cool thing is going back to the evidence based thing is that there's really good evidence for psychedelics like better like way i shouldn't say way better but significantly better than our current treatments for depression anxiety substance use so that's the cool part they these these compounds that have been around for eons for thousands of years have real significant effect sizes that show that could potentially change people's lives
2: and and make them happier, make them enjoy their life more. Why not? Like why the fuck not? Justin I think mentioned, you know, a lot of our medications are from pretty long ago um and things have changed and their ability to to make a significant difference in someone's chemistry is is different. Like it it's just it's just all different now. It's been so long. Um, I think the other piece that keeps me interested in it and keeps me thinking of like, this could be the next big thing that can really help us, uh, is how many of the older people are upset about it. How many of the older heads in the, in, in medicine and in therapy are like, no, like stay away from that. If they're upset by it, then maybe we should keep pushing it. Uh, cause just because they like things to to stay the same, I think makes it even more of like, yeah, we need to look at different things. Um, Justin's, uh, visual of, the going down a, a snowy hill and you're going down it and and the more you go down it in the same path uh the slower it gets because snow keeps getting pushed out of the way uh and psilocybin or, or any type of treatment and i use this example for anything whether it's cbt dbt talk therapy uh medication whatever can be the new thing that covers it with fresh snow and gives you an opportunity to figure out a new way to try something uh i'm all for it and i think it's I think it's a cool thing that we get to be in the middle of as professionals. Um, I don't have any plans on on being like and trying to get the the certification or the training to be a, a psilocybin assisted therapist. Um, but I think it's really cool. And I think it's something that really can can impact a lot of people who otherwise haven't gotten the that help that, that they need or that they deserve.
0: Man, there are so many directions I could go with this. So let's talk about the path of high resistance. So bringing back my identity as a veteran in the military are taught when you're entering like a hostile environment, you want to seek out the path of least resistance because you don't want to run into a rain of fire, so to speak. I think the opposite is true in life. I think we should, even though I hate the word should, I think we should seek out the path of highest resistance because I think in those pain lies the most growth. And similar to what you just said, Eddie, right? So. In that sense, like, what do you guys think about in terms of like, oh, if the older heads are triggered by this new emerging phenomenon of psychedelics, maybe that is a cue that we're on the right path. Similarly, when we get triggered the most, of course, safely, respectfully, often our tr- biggest trigger, uh, trigger points lies our biggest healing. And I think that applies to almost all aspects of mental health. Uh, any thoughts there? And then we'll talk a little bit more about psychedelics
2: no i I think that's a great point, I think um maybe not just mental health wise but I think just in my own like personal life of of trying to be a more informed adult uh and hearing things from a hopefully not too biased new source of just trying to figure out whether it's things locally, whether it's things nationally, whether it's things worldwide of like things that are going on you're right like the the stuff that upsets you um is probably gonna teach you a thing or two, and I think when in terms of like psychedelics or in terms of like mental health, I'm going to go back to what I said before of like going to the path of highest resistance, uh, that you personally can, can take, right. It's, it's helping a a client go through, uh, the trauma to the best of their ability in that moment, but also understanding, like, we're trying to build up to something. Right. So I agree with you. And I think my, my only two cents on it is yeah. on on what's, what's best for the, the person or how much, they can take out a certain time while understanding like we want to push and and get to another place.
1: And I'd say overall, I very much agree with you. And similar to the avoidance topic, yes, sometimes the hardest things in life are the most important and they suck a little bit. But I will provide a counter example to where... When I was in medical school, I was between applying for psychiatry and I thought maybe at the time I wanted to be an ear, nose and throat surgeon. I know very different uh, path and becoming an ear, nose and throat surgeon would have been the path of most resistance. In a lot of different ways. It would have been hard. I would have sacrificed a lot of myself. I would have sacrificed a lot of my family. I even had some residents in ENT tell me, like, oh, or do you have a do you have a girlfriend? I'm like, well, yeah, I do. And they'd say, Oh, well then I'd expect to break up with her by the end of residency. I'm like, Oh, that's that's pretty crappy. That's that's not what I want. So I would say Psychiatry was actually the path of less resistance compared to becoming a surgeon, but it was absolutely the right move for me.
0: Yeah. My partner, Becky, she hates when I bring her up on the show. So here we go. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like as you chatted offline right before we press record, uh, she's also a second year resident at Kaiser in LA uh, doing her internal medicine residency and she went through some sp- serious emotional and spiritual turmoil trying to decide between plastic surgery or IM. And myself and my parents and a lot of us really had to beg her and urge her to reconsider because I understand that within the medical world, there's also hierarchy of prestige. And I know plastic surgeons are usually at the pinnacle of the hierarchy um, with their pay, with their prestige, the rigorous of their work, etc. And I think she really recognized that is that the path she wanna embark on? Is that the amount of sacrifice under the this lens of purpose, right? Since medicine is purposeful for most people. Um and I think the best thing that happened in our relationship as we're getting ready to get engaged very soon. Uh, she won't find out because she won't be listening to this episode for a while. Uh, but yeah, I'll be proposing on the uh, our three-year anniversary, uh, which is coming in less than a month.
1: Cool. Uh, Congrats. Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I don't think that would have been possible if she chose that path. I don't even know if we would be together in LA or let alone just be together if there was a path she chose. So I love the nuances, Justin, for sharing. Yeah. So on that token... I want to ride the train of psychedelics a little bit longer and we'll do a soft pivot since there's a lot of wealth of conversations we can hit on within our time limits, is the best analogy I've heard in terms of what psychedelic experience is like for people who've never tried cannabis or any substances like that. And cannabis or weed is a very pale comparison or reference points for psychedelic experiences. Psychedelic experience, when you're on trip, trip, ericocollicule, it's like strapping a GPS navigation system on top of a rocket ship. You know it's flying and launching up somewhere, but you have no idea where it's going or the accelerate path of where that is going. And I sort of relate that to psychedelics. Uh, but I share that to talk about the next topic, intention setting. I think uh, I come from an eclectic background, but mindfulness is a big practice I have with my orientation. And intention setting is a big component of psychedelic experience. What that means is you set your intention before your trip to derive the maximum healing, whatever that means for the individuals. Uh, Any thoughts tying the topic of intention setting or intentionality and the scope of mental health and self-care or
1: everything in between? Totally. And I'll even jump on the topic of psychedelics a little bit more. That intention setting is so important because the mindset you go into that state of mind with is so important. And I think a lot of, or one of the biggest misconceptions about psychedelics is that, oh yeah, you just like down a bag of mushrooms and go into the woods and like party and go to a concert. No, that's not it at all. It's very intentional. And usually you have a therapist that you talk with beforehand to try and figure out what you want to work on. What are your biggest goals in life? What are your themes? What music is important to you? Like, what do you want to hear when you're on your trip? Because... Those kinds of things will guide you in the direction that you ultimately want to go. And similarly with, with mental health at all, if you have a patient that comes in and they're not ready to be seen, they don't know where they want to go, they don't, then you're not really going to go anywhere at all. So much of our world is we just kind of sit back and let the world happen. We, we just sit back and let it happen to us. And that intentionality, I think, is so important for having some control in your life, because as humans, we want control, man. And a lot of times kids and adults get in trouble when they start feeling like they're losing control and the things that they do to lash out because of it. So being aware of that intentionality, being able to gain that
2: control in the direction of your life can be so important. I'm trying to think when you were talking, Justin, the first thing that popped into my head was like uh, the stages of change. Um and working a lot with eating disorder patients for the, the time that I was in the hospital, I've, I've seen a lot of the kids were in that, that pre-contemplative or contemplative stage and trying to like, and we actually had a group called Intentions, which was like trying to plan for the week and then trying to plan for the day of like, what are things we're going to accomplish? What do we need to accomplish? What can we what can we do to, uh, to get to where we want to be? And I think it was a good practice. And one of the things that I remember that really stuck out To me, in in eating disorder treatment was if we wait for someone to be ready, we're going to be waiting forever. How I relate that to setting intentions is of trying to set intentions that that someone is capable of doing while also understanding that, like, yes, we're going to push it and try to get into that discomfort. And also, like, playing on a person's strengths and, and the client and the patient's strengths of, like, okay, this is where you're at right now. This is what you've said you've been able to do with other things. What if we try it out when it comes to eating your snack later today? Or what if we try it out when it comes to not exercising in your room when you're by yourself and have the opportunity to over-exercise? So I think that the idea of setting intentions and putting that together with like the stages of changes is like so important in our work and so important with trying to set the best intentions for our clients and like where they're at that day. And I, I think of it too, I, I used to tell the clients, of, I didn't stop telling them, but more specifically when I was at the eating disorder treatment, um, it was always like, give me the best that you can for each day. And if one day the best is you do everything correct, you eat all of your meals, you, your weight looks good, your vital signs are coming back perfect, great. If the best is like you hated getting out of bed, you're eating fifty percent and you want to tell me to F off, that's okay too, because it's the best that you're gonna give me that day, and I'm the same way. So I think it's I feel like I keep I keep giving the cop out of going back to like like you say Benoit, like the, the compassion piece, but setting intentions to me is setting the best intentions for someone uh and helping them helping them set the best intentions for themselves uh of where they're at currently. So
0: how can we be intentional about being proactive versus reactive? Tying Justin's response about a lot of us often let the world happens around us.
2: Setting our intentions of being proactive instead of reactive. If we're talking about ourselves, it's trying to figure out like where we're at currently and knowing that like it's going to be a work in progress, knowing that it's going to suck in the beginning, but knowing that it's something that can be, be worked on.
1: And I would say you have to be intentional about it. (laughs) Like, what I mean by that is give it time. Set aside time for for activities, things that you enjoy that allow you to think about what you want to do, that allow you to assess who you are, what you want. So many people go through life, and I know we use the example all the time of people spend or brush their teeth twice a day for their entire life, but how many people actually set aside five minutes a day for their mental health? So if you can do that, if you can set that aside, a little bit of time to do something that is important to you to process some of that stuff, it helps you be more intentional as to what you want to do with your life. So
0: my brain is firing. So I have another follow-up question. So in terms of doing the work and setting aside time intentionally to take care of mental health, physical health, whatever... Because I know a lot of people don't brush their teeth twice a day, especially men. We all know that's that's facts. Because I think a lot of people, I've met a lot of clients who've sought therapy before, and it just was not a good experience. And thank God they came back and gave it a second shot years down the road since the seed was planted. To such folks, I tell them, there's 168 hours in a week. Therapy is about 15 minutes, maybe an hour, if your therapist is really dedicated Right That's an hour out of one hundred sixty eight hours. We take longer shower if you accumulate the amount of time per week. That's more than the amount of time you see this professional therapist. So I always tell them integration is a the key. Therapy is part of the work, but it's not the work. Any thoughts there tying to this with what we just talked about?
2: I like that example a lot and i'm gonna I'm gonna remember that if I can take a shower long enough. <laughs> during the week that it equals out to like a therapy session. Like I can, the, there's a, that your idea of, of integration of like, how do I fit this into my life? And then I think it go it leads to like the ideas of like priorities and like, what are things that we can like shift around and what are things that don't necessarily need as much time? I know for me, I'll speak, uh, candidly, like TikTok does not need as much time as it gets during the day for me. Uh, I have a book on my nightstand that I'm working through and that I, I'm really enjoying, but I'm not giving it enough priority and not enough intention and integration into my life. So now I'm going to later tonight, I'll probably read it and, and shame because I <laughs> I need to be reading it. Um, but I I guess I don't really have much of an answer of of this idea of integration, but more of like I like it, and I think it is important in, in helping our, our clients to understand and figure out, and even for ourselves, like, where can I maybe sacrifice some time here and there? Because if I could do it each day, by the end of the week, it'll equal out to a whole therapy session or or as much time as I take to shower during the week. I think therapy has to be the seed,
1: the thing that starts the big changes in your life. Hopefully therapy is educational shows you what you need to change teaches you coping strategies teaches you how to be introspective think about growth think about your life so that that ultimately you can move in the right direction sometimes you need that therapy to be the start of it all Um, so i think yeah it has to be the seed and then it starts to spread out and sometimes you, you get a bum seed and you get the wrong therapist and it just doesn't work. It's just not a good fit. And that happens. And sometimes it can be really demoralizing. But just having the idea that I'm going to find the seed that's going to help me build up my root structure, my foundation so that I can start to blossom. Oh, that was cheesy. Oh, that was so cheesy. <laughs> my apologies.
0: <laughs> we are forgiven. I love a uh, language reframe. Um, like I'm multicultural, as I shared with Justin before Eddie joined us and I'm trilingual. So I think language is very powerful. And if you think about language, it's artificial, it's man-made, but it allows us with three different people with three different genetic mutations, with their three different cultural upbringing, three different regions, three different skin colors to communicate in the same way of what's happening in our brains. I don't know about you guys, but that blows my mind every single day, the intricacy of language. So to that note, Uh, I want to share another thing that I often share with my clients and friends is if I were to ask you, you can dedicate 2% of your effort to improve dramatically the 98% of your life. Would you do that trade-off? I think most people would say yes. And that's therapy. 2% will magically improve all aspects of life for 98%. And I'm very quantitative. So I feel like when you lay out like that, it's a no-brainer. Because people are like, oh, an hour seems like a drag. Oh, I don't know if I have an hour to see a therapist, or uh, I don't know if I have two hours to talk with close friends about emotional stressors. So if you want to quantify that, let's quantify everything, not just a certain aspect, right? Um, So I just want to share that in the hopes of uh, having us with more perspective on languages.
1: We're all about stats and facts. So we love that quantitative that helps us visualize. And it's so right. You're so right.
0: Yeah. Uh, maybe that could be the next uh, project for you guys: Stats and Facts podcast <laughs> with, <laughs> with Justin and Eddie.
2: <laughs> Just stats and facts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, catch it, it catches the it works.
1: Right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> Justin talked about this in the beginning of the show where getting help is hard because to get help you must recognize that you need help, and that's I think is the biggest barrier, especially for men, right? And for my men clients i usually say oh i'm not here to heal you i'm not here to save you because savior complex is real i'm here to simply help you self-discover self-explore and help you get unstuck that's what i feel like is what therapy is and i feel like that's a good reframe that works with my clients a lot of times if they're men um, but i just wanted to see what are some of the tangible concrete language or tools or techniques that you two use to help destigmatize therapy or mental health for your clients and patients?
2: I felt like I came up with uh, when I was in the community mental health clinic was was talking to to teens about like you're carrying this bucket. Like this bucket is, is uh, let's just say it's, it's what carries your emotions and the things you're dealing with. And really the only person who knows how full the bucket is is you. And the only other people who may know how full the bucket is is your support people that are close to you. If you physically think about me standing in the middle of a room with a bucket and you're standing next to me, you can easily look over in the bucket and see how full the bucket is. Um And that could be, that's the example of of uh, you're someone that I let in and someone that I can talk to and and knows about what's going on. If you're farther out, if you're in the corner of the room, I'm in the other corner of the room, you don't know what's in the bucket and you can't really tell how heavy it is. The hard part with the bucket is that it gets fuller and fuller when, when things go on and when we, when we have these difficult things that happen and we're not emptying our bucket somewhere else. And then we eventually get to the point where the bucket is spilling over and, and it's starting to make a mess everywhere. And I equate that to we're having blow ups at school or we're not able to, to talk with our parents or our significant others upset with us because we're not communicating and we're just blowing up everywhere. And, and I, I try to, uh, explain to clients and the teens of like, therapy and and just checking in with each other is your opportunity to walk the bucket over and have some help with me either carrying the bucket with you or just being next to you as you carry the bucket and we go to a place like a sink or like the the backyard and we dump it in a place that's that's a little easier to dump it um another thing that i use that's I, i swish it up a little bit is for because i'm in a school setting now is talking to students about the backpack that they wear every day like the only person that knows how heavy the backpack is is you and maybe the person next to you when you take it off your backpack and it boosh on right onto the floor, right? you That's the only people that know. Uh, and the way I explain therapy and treatment and, and checking in with them is like, let me take a couple of those textbooks out of the backpack for you. Let let's Let's act like this is the locker and you're emptying out a little bit so you don't have to carry it all day. Because if you get through a full day or a full week of this heavy ass backpack, you're going to be in a lot of pain. But if we can make it a little lighter for you, it's a lot easier to get through the week. Share the load. To build off of that question,
1: I've had so many male patients tell me, I'm not going to therapy. There's nothing that they're going to tell me that's going to change my life. And I think that tells us a lot about the mindset of people and the perception of what men have for therapy. My personal strategy is uh, I always start with goals. Like, what do you want? Like, why are you here? What do you want to get out of life? And then I try to use that Socratic method of try to help people understand how their own thought processes, how their own mental health, how their poor self-esteem is getting in the way of those goals to make them understand that I am not there to to just preach at them. I am there to try and help them figure it out so they can attain their goals because if you just tell them, if you tell people what to do, they're going to be like, man, screw this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But if, if, if you can get them to understand that you are just trying to help them attain what they already want. And this is what I know. My entire training has gone into this. Like, I know that these medicines help. I am just trying to get you to where you want to go. Let's figure it out together. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm not here to tell you all these crazy ideas. I'm here to help You get to where you want to be.
0: Yeah, the number one indicator for successful therapeutic outcome is therapeutic alliance, period. The modalities, those are like 16%, I think. Um, But majority is just a rapport and align with the client, beautifully said. And I think a lot of us forget that. You don't have to have all these fancy honorifics and degrees. Just align yourself with what the person wants that's sitting across from you. But to do that, we need
2: conversations. One thousand percent. I so not to cut you off in a while, but I when I'm telling my students, like as I'm teaching, they're they're like in, and I think what helps separate me a little bit from like maybe the other instructors that they have is that like most of my time is doing clinical work, and it's not on campus doing research or like in my office like advising students. Like it is actually it's working, and a lot of the professors maybe have had that experience before, maybe some of them maybe never have, and they were mostly research-based, whatever it is. But I feel like that's not talked about enough. Like I feel like a lot of people get into this idea of like, I need to have my modality. I need to have this textbook. I need to have this manual that's going to tell me how to do this the best. But if you're not able to sit across the way, you know, across your desk or or someone sits in a chair in front of you who you've never met before in your entire life and they are now here potentially in like the lowest part they've ever been in their life if you can somehow have a conversation with them to where they feel not like they have to open up all the way but they can at least share something then it doesn't matter what you know it doesn't matter what expertise you have like that's great if someone is dbt certified that's great if someone's done all these certifications i personally the people that that flaunt those i i chuckle to myself because to me they might not be the best clinician. They might not be as good as they think they are. And maybe I just think too highly of myself, but it is so important that like it does come down to that. If you can't meet someone that you've never met before and get them to feel comfortable enough to share and open up to you, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you've learned. It doesn't matter what you feel like you're an expert in.
0: I appreciate, I think all of us as podcasters and healthcare professionals and mental health and psychiatry, I think we recognize the power and the healing property of conversations, uh, more so there are a lot of people. And honestly, podcasting ha- and being a clinician concurrently, I think is the best decision I've made because it's it's bidirectional. It, the better I get as a clinician, the better I am as a podcaster. The better I am as a podcaster, the better I am as a clinician. Even though there are of course nuances, but I see them very as complementary. I actually wanted to tie the conversation on why we need a conversation more than ever with politics. Um, because we haven't talked about, you know, heavy, important topics enough, might as well go a little bit deeper, right? <laughs> I think as a former policymaker who went to one of the best schools in the uh, country regarding policy at Penn in Philadelphia, I really recognize that there's a lot of these intellectual folks coming to the professor on policy or clinical or med school or whatever, for the right intention. They mean well, but I think they overlook the most simplistic thing of just conversation, just talking to someone as this humanistic human beings who we have the same genetic makeups, we're born the same way and we die the same way, period. And a lot of people with this high caliber policymakers with great educations, great intellectual paralysis, they got them all, like what you said, Eddie, except the common humanity piece, which I think is the most important bridge. So tying the importance to agree to disagree and the importance of having a conversation like a fellow human being, tying that to both of your passion with social justice and politics. How do you two balance the fine line of staying informed with what's going on? Because information is important if it's unbiased or least biased and also safeguarding your mental health from the total chaos that's happening every
1: single day. Lot in that question, lot to unpack. I think you're so absolutely right about the conversation side of it. I feel like our media sources are trying to get us to not have conversations. They're training us to get highly emotional when talking about politics. And when things get emotional, then you can't have an intelligent conversation so a big part of what we try and do a big part of having this growth mindset being open to other ideas is is being able to have conversations without getting too emotional taking that piece out of it so that we can teach the best that we can on the podcast appeal to the broadest audience Bring us together instead of just fracturing us even more. Cause sometimes, unfortunately, emotion can really rip us apart, especially if we, if we give into those negative emotions. So I, I'll admit I'm pretty much a bleeding heart liberal at this point. Uh, but I want to surround myself with people who don't have the same political ideas because I know that's good for me. It's important to surround myself with people who don't think the same way as me, which is one of the reasons I actually like being in Nebraska, which is a very conservative state, it is that great food here, surprisingly, in Omaha, Nebraska, but there is good diversity, especially in Omaha, keeping those conversations going to continue that growth mindset.
2: I think I, I sometimes will will have to catch myself, have a conversation with one of my friends, and. Uh, he'll have maybe a different idea on like the governor's race, for example, here in Oregon. And like, for me, I'm, I'm all about one candidate and the other one, I'm like, I can't stand her at all. And I get upset anytime I see her commercial with paid actors that are anyway. Um, And I think I have to remind myself sometimes when, when he says something or with other people say something that maybe is different from what I'm thinking, it's good to hear it because it then kind of helps me come back to earth and understand like, Okay, may, maybe I am catastrophizing a little bit. Maybe one candidate versus the other, you know, maybe it's not as, as huge of a, a thing as possible i mean for this one i've kind of made up my mind with the oregon governor's race but for other things too and i think um my hope is that npr is as, as unbiased as possible but i can understand if they're leaning in, in one direction but i think what's been helpful as someone who listens to a lot of npr like podcasts is just getting to hear other sides of stories because i think it's easy for us to just focus on the one side i i um i think justin and i have talked about it too it's like i can never in a million years see myself voting for someone like Donald Trump but i can see why people did and i can see why why people feel like he's he's the right person for the job and he's the person that represents them it it goes back to what you were just saying he was able to have those conversations and maybe not directly with people but through his speeches and through his his ads and through his his debates and all of that he was having a conversation with with a lot of people in the United States and they felt heard because of him. So they felt like this is the guy for us. Um, And I think it's important that we have that mindset and that understanding of like it's we have to understand or we have to at least listen to parts of the other side so that we at least can be firm believers in what we, we feel like we believe in.
0: Yeah, even with Trump being a shiny example to this topic, we, we, I think we obviously I'm not a fan of Trump either. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that he is a part of the media machine. He's a, a gear in the clog. And unless you've sat across from him, talked to Trump, observed his body language, his nonverbal cues. As we know, communication, like 65% of communication is nonverbal. Unless you've done that, if you've known him for a prolonged amount of time. The version of him that's presented on media is not the version that he is authentically. He could be. He may not. None of us know. I've never talked to him in person, right? So I just want to reintroduce the nuances because perception isn't reality. Our perceptions are often distorted, but people think it is reality. It's it's not simply that. So um, I appreciate you two entertaining the political topic, and I, uh, I tread this water very lightly. But I thought it's a relevant topic to tie into everything we talked about, especially the nuances of it. So. So uh, this is where we hit our signature discover more questions. The first fold is after this wide-ranging, humorous, heavy, insightful conversations, what is a domain in both of your lives that you want to discover more about after the fact? The second fold is for my listeners and your listeners, what is a domain in their lives you want to encourage or even challenge them to discover more and think more about after the show.
2: I guess I don't know if it's really a domain, but I think for myself, and it's probably going to be tied into what I say for other people is, is how can I continue uh, to learn and do things um, that are what's best for me, and maybe not what's like the most comfortable, but like how do I continue to like be the best me, whether it's mentally, physically, emotionally, all of it. um, And I think that that probably comes in a ton of different ways. It's it's consuming more information, uh, but not too much, but just the right amount that I can consume it each time and, and really take what I'm getting. That's going to be my final answer. I feel good about that. I would say
1: for me, what I want to work on a specific domain would be parenting. I want to know how to raise the most emotionally healthy young person that I can. And I would say what I want everyone and listeners to work on, parenting. <laughs> because it is so important for mental health. And I know so many people who grew up in unhealthy environments That really set them up for negative automatic thoughts, cognitive distortions, poor self-esteem, because that's what was imparted to them by their parents. And so I want people to become aware of generational trauma and perhaps even bad parenting that happened in their past. Become aware of it, have good insight so that they can fix it and not let those things continue to linger on for generations to come.
0: Yeah, beautifully, beautifully said. Um, this is where I roll out the red carpet for you both, um, Justin and Eddie. Uh, where can people connect with you to further check out the awesome content that you two have shared? Uh, I know your show is a little bit shorter than mine, so it might attract more audiences. But if people have any questions, curiosities, they want to just bring these conversations offline with you two, where can they people find you and whatever projects you two have going on on the horizon?
2: Thanks, Benoit, for the opportunity. And I'll just say it real quick. I mean, thanks for having us on. I'm, I'm excited to, I know Justin's excited to have you on, uh, in our show coming up here soon. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, as far as where people can find us, we're on, on every podcast streaming site, whether it's Apple podcast, Spotify, the more obscure ones like Overcast, Castbox, things like that. Uh, we're part of like the Spreaker network with iHeartRadio. Um, so you can also find us on Spreaker. They're a great podcast platform. Um, as far as the social media, Instagram, Twitter... TikTok, it's at Millennial MHC. Uh, and I will go ahead and share an embarrassing moment for us. We actually spelled Millennial wrong on our, our podcast artwork when we first started, because uh, it is a tough word. So for the listeners, it is two L's and two N's uh, at Millennial MHC. And you can also email us. We have Millennial MH channel at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing from listeners. We love getting uh, a good number of our podcast episodes have have, have actually been suggestions from listeners. And we think that's really cool. And we, we enjoy when people reach out to us uh, and we just enjoy to know people are listening. So thank you for letting us share that. Yeah,
0: seriously. Thank you for taking this time. I know that all of us are fairly busy folks with a lot of impact we're trying to impart on this world. So I appreciate both of your insights, depth of knowledge. Uh, Eddie, I'm going to steal the bucket is full analogy from Please me do. Pronto. <laughs> um, and yeah, Justin, I appreciate your insightfully succinct responses. Um, and very excited to check out your TED talk when it comes out. And I'm sure it would have been dropped by the time the episode is out. And of course I'll link all those information, the link below. Um, and one last comment I want to say with the two L's Eddie is, um, man, this is really cheesy, but two L's equals a positive. So, you know, so whatever that means, man, moving forward, you know, Matt's joke. And to all the listeners, as always, I really appreciate your intentional attentions, checking us the long-form podcast I have week after week. Uh, we just passed the three-year mark recently in September, and then our YouTube channel just broke 1,000, 1K subscribers within five months. I uh, am yeah, very, very excited. All oh, the sweat, blood, and tears uh, are paying off a little bit in addition to all the hopeful messages and interactions we do have on social media. But as always, I'll include all their show notes in the episode below. And if you found any value from this episode, uh, please hit like, subscribe, and share this episode with one friend. That's the best way to encourage me to continue to seek out amazingly funny and insightful folks like Justin and Eddie today. And as always, hope to see you again in next week's Train of Discover More. Thank you for listening.